We are looking at John chapter 9 this morning as we are resuming our sermon series in the fourth gospel. And I know that you'll find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along with me as we are looking at uh, John chapter 9 verses 1 through 41 this morning. We are not quite halfway through this series in John, and yet we are discovering so much about who the Lord Jesus is, so much about his compassion, so much about his power, so much about his glory. That's really the essence of this book is the glory of Christ, and that comes out so well in chapter 1 when the Apostle John says, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. And so we keep that in mind as we're looking this morning at John 9, verses 1 through 41. And as usual, I know that you'll find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. Jesus has left the Feast of Tabernacles there in Jerusalem. He is moving on now through Judea. And now we read these words. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who, who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son whom you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. But the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been born blind, who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner or not, 
a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. We are Moses' disciple. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, on March 21st, 1748, John Newton, that great pastor, theologian, and hymn writer, found himself on a slave ship that he had labored in as a sailor, and yet he found himself in shackles bound to the helm of that ship because of the way that he had treated other men on the boat and other officers. And as he found himself shackled to that helm and as the boat was being um, torn apart by the storms, Newton cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. It was arguably the first time he had ever prayed. Newton had been raised by a godly mother who died when he was seven. She had actually prayed that he would become a minister of the gospel. And yet, after she died, he was taken by his father into the shipyards where he would spend the rest of his early adult life serving as a a slave trader. And he was so wicked that his nickname was the Great Blasphemer. Instead of proclaiming the truths that... He had been taught by his mother as a young boy. He labored um, assiduously to turn his fellow sailors away from those truths. Um, But here he found himself in this storm, March 21st, 1748, and and he was converted at that moment. He, He wrote in his diary at one point, he, um, He said, on that day, the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. The Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. And then, almost 47 years to the day after he was converted, on March 21st, 1805, he wrote, as an older man, not not well able to write, by endeavor, I endeavor to observe the return of this day with humiliation, prayer, and praise. Now, what you do know about John Newton is that he would go on to be one of the greatest hymn writers in the history of the Western-speaking church and English-speaking world, and he would write 300 and, 
48 hymns, the most famous of which is Amazing Grace. And you know that first line is autobiographical. The experience that he had there on the ship in that storm when he cried out, Lord, have mercy, and God drew him out of the deep waters is the experience he speaks about when he says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. Newton was reflecting on the words of the blind man. All I know is I was blind, and now I see. I don't know how he did it. At that point, I don't even know who he is, but I was blind, and now I see. It's one of the great moving statements of what God does when he opens the eyes of the hearts that are darkened and blind by nature to see the Lord Jesus Christ and who he truly is. Well, this passage comes on the tail end of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. It is all connected. Jesus is essentially going to give us a parable of what it means for him to diffuse the light of his saving grace into the life of someone through his opening of the eyes of this blind man. This, this man stands as an allegory of all of us by nature. Um, we're going to see that this morning. But I want us to consider three things as we look at this passage together. First, I want us to consider the healing of the man born blind. Then I want us to consider the interrogation of the man born blind. And then I want us to consider the revelation of the Son of Man, the healing the interrogation, and the revelation. We'll notice that John is tracking Jesus very carefully. He is, by the way, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, very interesting. Everything John does is very strategic. He doesn't do anything in an arbitrary way. Every account he gives, he does with great selectivity. At the end of this book, he'll tell us that if all the things Jesus said or did were written down, the world itself couldn't contain all the things that he did. And, and what John is doing is he is picking very specific events in the life and ministry of Jesus to encourage us to believe in him. He'll tell us at the end of the book, these things are written that you may believe in the Son of God and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. And so this passage and this account is written so that you may believe in the Son of God. The very question Jesus will ask this man, do you believe in the Son of Man? is the very question that this is meant to answer for us in Scripture. Now, this is the sixth of seven miracles in John's Gospel. There are seven miracles. The first is found in chapter 2. It's the turning of water to wine. The second is the healing of the royal official's son in chapter 4. The third is the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in chapter 5. The fourth is the feeding of the great multitude in chapter 6. The fifth is Jesus walking on water in chapter 6. This is the sixth, the healing of the man born blind, and the seventh will be the raising of Lazarus. And what's interesting about that is all of those miracles are very different. Whether it is a miracle of nature transformation in the water to wine, or it is a resurrection from the dead in Lazarus. And John has picked for us very strategically a, a, a gambit of the miracles that Jesus performed. It's been noted that um, when Jesus talks about what he's doing in Matthew 11, he says that the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised, that, that those are the three categories of healing miracles that John is setting out. We've seen the lame man healed. Now we're going to see the blind man given his sight, and then we're going to see Lazarus raised. 
And, and there's also an increase of the power of Jesus at display. It's very interesting. From water to wine to the resurrection of one who's been dead for several days. Isn't that fascinating? There's an exponential increase of the power that he displays in these. And every one of these miracles teaches us something spiritual about Jesus. Every one of them is teaching us something about his redemption. Now, notice the first thing that we see here is that John tells us that Jesus saw a man blind from birth. The man didn't see Jesus. The man didn't cry out like Bartimaeus, son of David, have mercy on me. He is sitting there wallowing in his misery. He is well known to have been blind from birth. He has positioned himself outside the temple because he is not allowed inside the temple because of his physical deformity and and what that pointed to in the Old Testament. He is cut off from society. He is in a place of absolute helplessness, abandonment, hopelessness, and he's not trying to get any help. He is just sitting there begging. Um, He is isolated, and he is as it were, sitting in, in, in the darkness that his blindness represents. And he is a picture of every one of us by nature. It doesn't matter how cultured, it doesn't matter how articulate or gifted or put together you are, every one of us is this man by nature. That's why this miracle is in the Bible. And notice that at the beginning, one of the most comforting things about the healing of this man is that Jesus takes the sovereign initiative. Jesus sees him. Now, that means wherever you are in life, wherever you may find yourself spiritually, Jesus knows your condition. There's nothing he doesn't know. He has eyes like a flame of fire. He sees all things. He is the one who is before all things, and in him all things consist. And and it is both frightening and it is comforting that Jesus does that. It is frightening because he knows all of our sin. It is comforting because he is also full of compassion. And he has compassion on this man. The Savior is moved with compassion. He, He was sent not to destroy, but to bring salvation. He was sent not to bring judgment, but he came to bring renewal and redemption. And, and he takes note of this man, and no sooner does John tell us that Jesus takes note of him, notice the disciples' response. The disciples ask him this very odd question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, lots to unpack here. There is a stark contrast between Jesus and the disciples. Jesus looks on this man with pity and compassion. The disciples look on him self-righteously. So don't miss this. The disciples are a picture of what we are like by nature, too. Um, they, they wanted to fixate on other people's sin. I want you to read, I want to read this quote from John Calvin to you. Calvin says, while every man is ready to censure others with extreme bitterness, there are few who apply that to themselves as they ought to with the same severity. If my brother meets with adversity, I instantly acknowledge the judgment of God. But if God chastens me with a heavier stroke, I wink at my sins. It's John Calvin. Isn't that interesting? That they are ready to say, Lord, why did this guy deserve what's happened to him, this affliction? 
Um, there's a word there for us that we would be much quicker at pointing out our own sins than the sins of others. Because if you fill your mind and heart with the news, you will be trained to fixate on what's wrong with everyone else and not what's wrong with you. And usually it's not even things that are wrong with them. It's made up things. But here the disciples are looking contemptuously at this man instead of with hearts of compassion. And then they ask that very odd question, who sinned, this man or his parents? How could this man have sinned to have been born this way? And maybe they're thinking that there was some sort of sin that he committed in the womb of his mother, but they are, they are essentially saying all affliction is a result of sin. Now let me say this this morning, all affliction is a result of sin, Adam's sin. So all the miseries of this life, all of the thorns that we feel in our experiences and our bodies are a result of Adam's sin. That's why there is misery in this life. But not all affliction is a result of personal sin. And notice that the disciples are more ready to look at the sins of others than Jesus is. Isn't that interesting? The one who came into the world to die for the sins of his people, the one who calls people to repent of their sins, is slower to fixate on the personal sin of this man than the disciples are. And he is quicker to focus on the miserable condition of this man. You know, we will never truly care for others until we get hearts of sympathy and empathy for what they might be going through, even and sometimes especially when they're lost. Um, we may never be able to love people into the kingdom of God, but if we don't love them, we certainly won't gain much of a hearing from them. They'll see us as just hitting them up with the good news instead of bringing it to them, speaking the truth in love. Here, Jesus takes note of this man. Jesus says to the disciples, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Think about this. God ordained that this man would spend the better part of his life blind so that Jesus could come into this world to heal him, to teach you that he can heal you and open the eyes of your dark hearts by nature. Isn't that amazing? Even his affliction is going to be used by God to magnify the grace and the compassion and the redemption of Jesus. Think of that. It, I'm sure that man right now in heaven is saying it was all worth it. Every day of my affliction was worth it. Think of that. Think how many people were converted based on this man's interaction with Jesus once it was recorded in Scripture. It's remarkable. Well, the Savior is intent on healing. And notice he says in verse 5, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. I've come to give light. I came to diffuse that light to those that are sitting in darkness. Jesus didn't come to people because they shaped up. He doesn't come to people because they do good enough or they reform themselves enough. He comes to us when we are sitting in darkness. Think of that. He comes to people when they are in darkness and rebellion to shine light on them. Now, Jesus does this very odd thing. Notice verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud, with the saliva, then anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, what in the world is Jesus doing? I don't know. I'm just going to tell you right now. You could outread me all day long, and you won't know for sure. This is really obscure. 
Um, I will point out that Augustine said, since this is clear, let, let, let us pass over it. Thanks, Augustine. So apparently Augustine knew what it meant and didn't tell us. Uh, I thought that was just thought. I'm like, no, I read, I read you just for this. Um, so w- w- here, here are some options. Um, one option is that um, Jesus is using um, material things, not because they have any power in them, but to show the power he has and that he can heal in any way that he wants. I think there's something to that. Um, just like he sets aside bread and wine in the supper, and it's just bread and wine, but he uses that in, in growing his people in grace when we partake. Um, I, I also think it, it may be an allusion to the fact that man came out of the dust of the ground and that Jesus is in some sense alluding to the fact that, that we are now just fallen dust and yet he is going to restore and redeem It's interesting because the putting of the mud that he creates on the eyes of the man would actually further his blindness. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. It would actually further his blindness, and yet that's going to be the means by which he heals this man. And in that sense, I think Jesus is basically uh, teaching the principle that he heals by unlikely and unexpected means. The cross is the most unlikely and unexpected way you get saved. And yet it's the only way we get saved. A man nailed to a tree as a criminal cursed. A king, a traitor, nailed to a tree. That is foolishness, Paul says. This is a foolish means, and I think likely that's why the Savior is doing this. But he tells this man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, We get a hint into what is happening here because this pool, which would have been about 250-some feet in diameter, they say, probably much like the the park that is water, I don't know the name of it, one of y'all tell me downtown, it would have been something like that, and he tells this man to go, and the name of that pool is Scent. John puts that in parentheses, he wants you to know the name of that pool is Scent, and, and there are two things going on here. Jesus is at one and the same time saying, I am the one sent from my Father. John loves that theme. He sent me. My Father sent me. I'm here. I am the light of the world. I've come into the world. I am the long-awaited sent one. But then he is also sending this man to the pool, and this man is going to have to believe and walk by faith. Uh, much like Naaman the Syrian. Remember that account where God told Naaman that through Elisha that if he would go down and he would wash seven times in the Jordan that his leprosy would be healed and he didn't want to do it. It was a foolish means. It didn't make any sense. He didn't have any proof of it. And yet he finally went and he dipped seven times and he was healed. Remember that. Um, This man was going to have to take Jesus at his word. And you know what's remarkable? He couldn't see him. He had no one helping him on to Jesus, and yet he took him at his word, he made his way to the pool, and he received his sight. You know, that may be one of the most remarkable examples of faith, saving faith in the Bible. Remember, I've told you the Israelites were bitten in the wilderness. Moses was to put a bronze serpent, another foolish means of healing. Whoever looked at it would be healed. 
but how many probably didn't look and died because they thought that was foolish. You know, here the principle is that Christ heals us when we listen to all that he says in his word and and what his word directs us to is to look to him crucified in faith to be healed. That's where the scales fall off. That's where the blindness goes away. That's where we finally come to see. Um, When I ask you this morning, have you ever truly seen the Lord Jesus with the eyes of faith crucified for you as the one who's healed you, who's opened your eyes and enabled you to see? That's, That's what the healing of the blind man points us to. Um, You know, this was prophesied of in Isaiah chapter 35, I believe, when so long before Isaiah prophesied 700-some years before Christ came. And and in Isaiah 35, the prophet said, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open. Isn't that amazing? This man is a picture fulfillment of that prophecy. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We sang that this morning, didn't we? Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. The blind receive their sight. Well, I want us to consider, secondly, the interrogation of the blind man. Now, One would think if you had half a heart, you would be excited that somebody who used to be blind could see. I saw my best friend's mom not that long ago in Greenville, and she was almost blind most of her life, and she would squint whenever she talked to you. And then she got this experimental surgery recently, and she can see now. She's in her 70s. And I said, Mrs. Birch, that's amazing. And she said, it is. Come here. She still squinted because she was so used to it. (laughs) But I was rejoicing that her whole life she had struggled with poor eyesight, and now she had helped to see clearly. Who would not rejoice that someone would be helped away from their maladies? And yet, you know who would not be? Self-righteous people. Religiously self-righteous people. People that think they're the gatekeepers of orthodoxy. People that love to point out other people's sin and not focus on their own. People like the entire church in the day of Jesus. This is the church. Don't miss that. I'm not going to downplay that. This is the church. And the church and its leaders are not excited that this man's healed. In fact, notice um, the neighbors were saying in verse 8, this, this is in this the man who used to sit and beg? And some were like, well, I, I think it's him. Some were like, nah, it looks like him. They knew who it was, but they didn't want to see who it was because they hated that Jesus had healed him. It's remarkable. The world's hatred for Jesus, and even here religious churchgoers' hatred for Jesus, is such that they cannot even acknowledge who this man is and what has happened to him, though they have known him his entire life. Um, he kept saying, I am the man. (laughs) Um, And their interest is not so much in him. Their interrogation of him is really in their desire to reject the Lord Jesus. Um, Notice verse 13, very interesting statement. They not only cannot rejoice with him, they have to bring him 
to the religious leaders in Israel. Notice, they brought him to the Pharisees. They brought the man who had been formerly blind. So this would be essentially like um, us taking this man to the Supreme Court. They're taking him to the highest court in Israel to be interrogated. Instead of letting this man enjoy his life, instead of saying, this is amazing, and rejoicing with him and having a feast and celebrating with him, they put him on trial. Isn't that remarkable? Um, Calvin again says, wicked men are so far from profiting by the works of God that the more they are urged by their power, so much more are they constrained to pour out the venom which dwells in their breast. The restoration of sight to the blind man ought undoubtedly to have softened every, even hearts of stone, or at least the Pharisees ought to have been struck with the novelty and greatness of the miracle. But Calvin says, their hatred of Christ drives them to such stupidity. I like that, John Calvin. Drives them to such stupidity that they instantly condemn what they are told that he has done. It's very interesting, by the way, that the last time Jesus gave a physical healing, it was on the Sabbath day. Do you remember that? And it enraged them because he had healed on the Sabbath. You think, with most people, they would be like, well, I'm not going to do that again, because I don't want to make everybody mad. But not Jesus. He purposefully, again, heals this man on the Sabbath day. It's as if he is wanting to contend with his enemies. I love that about the Lord Jesus. He's not afraid of anybody. the, The Proverbs say the righteous are bold as a lion. Jesus was bold as a lion. Because he had no sin. He had no guilt. He he didn't have to fear man. And notice as the Pharisees contend with this man and he recounts what happens and they question him and he tells them and they then bring his parents and they tell him this is our son and then they bring him back a second time in verse 24 and notice their issue is not with this man but with Jesus. They say give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now I just want to say as an aside, in their interrogation of this man, they are teaching us an important principle. Men and women can do many things that they think bring glory to God that's actually evil. So they say to this man, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. It's also interesting that they think they are sinless and they say that he was born in utter sin and they want to say Jesus is a sinner when there's only one person in the room who's not a sinner. It's fascinating. They're blind. They can't see. This man has seen. Their contentions with the son who enabled him to see. And I love uh, what this man finally says to them in verse 27. You sort of get his frustration. I can't imagine the internal angst he, said, he had. He says, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? Um, and then that man, though he does not yet know Jesus savingly, Defends him. Notice verse 32. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Now, um, Sinclair Ferguson has helpfully said this. 
a basic misunderstanding of the Lord Jesus and a basic misunderstanding of the way in which the Lord Jesus operates will become a little speck in my eye that I continue to rub until I am completely blind to the Lord Jesus himself. So if, if we do not know him savingly, if we cannot see who he is, he, he is like an irritant in people's eyes that they rub until they're completely blind. So here, Christ is teaching us how the eyes of men's hearts are open, and yet they are exemplifying further and further and further darkness and blindness. Isn't that fascinating? The stark contrast between the man that's healed and these religious leaders. Now, I want us to thirdly and finally consider the revelation of the Son. It's interesting, at some point Jesus has snuck out of the room, outside the temple area. He is, he's, somebody said this, he's playing hide-and-seek. He's left, they're interrogating the man, and, and he doesn't know where, the man doesn't know where he went. And then when things have sort of simmered down and they've cast the man out, then Jesus goes and finds the man. I think there's a lesson here for us. You know, it's interesting. Jesus often works in our lives at moments and in places when no one else can see it. I know that was true for me when I was converted. I was in the most unlikely place by myself when he worked in my soul to redeem me. Um, and, And that shows that he loves to deal intimately with his people. I want to I say this this morning, if I can. There is something so marvelous in the fact that the Lord Jesus wants to deal intimately with you and with me. That he wants, he wants to deal with us out of the, the sight of prying eyes so often. In the inner recesses of our soul, he finds this man. He hears that he's been cast out. He goes to him. And he begins to reveal himself to him. Now, at this point, this man is not yet converted savingly. He will be at the end of this passage. But he comes and he first says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, that's it. I want you to think about this. Everything in this chapter is leading to one question from Jesus. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, the Son of Man is a messianic title out of Daniel Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel says, I saw in the night one like the Son of Man coming with the Ancient of Days, and he ascended with the clouds, and to him was given a kingdom and authority and rule and dominion. Um, and, And he is envisioning there the ascension of Christ, going and receiving the kingdoms of the world after his saving work. And and that's Jesus' favorite self-designation. He is the glorious Son of Man. And he's standing before this man, and think about this. I've always thought this was marvelous. The first thing, the first thing that oftentimes the blind see in the Gospels when Jesus heals them is Jesus. Think about that. The first thing they see is the Son, but what Jesus wants us to know is that there is a a spiritual sight that is more important than the physical sight. He comes and he finds this man, and he says, do you believe In the Son of Man, the man says, I don't know who he is, Lord. Who is he that I may believe? And Jesus says, you have seen him. It is he who is speaking to you. Now, this passage is going to end with Jesus 
summarizing everything that's happened in it. And I want us to just focus on this as we close in verse 39. Jesus says, for judgment, I came into this world. Now, you may say earlier, you told me he didn't come to judge, but he came to save. Well, he's going to judge on the last day. But here, Jesus does something very important that you would miss if you glossed over this. He says, for judgment, I came into this world. And what's the first thing he says? Notice this. That those who do not see may see. So, for judgment, I came into this world. Salvation. So that those who do not see may see. So, judgment unto salvation. That's confusing unless we understand that the judgment we deserve falls on him on the cross, so that judgment and salvation are inextricably linked together. The judgment he came into this world to do, first and foremost, was to hang on the cross in judgment for our sin. I've always thought it was interesting, I've noted this, I think, in the past, that all the maladies of those Jesus healed fell on him in some sense. So I mentioned the woman with the flow of blood, and he has an unstoppable flow of blood on the cross. Um, He heals the blind man. He is blindfolded as he's led to judgment. He takes the sin and the misery on himself. He takes the judgment on himself. He takes the consequence of sin and rebellion on himself. And so he says, For judgment I have come into the world that those who do not see may see. And then notice this, And those who see may become blind. Now, what does he mean by that? He means all the people, and maybe you're one of them, who think with your intellectual superiority, in your great wisdom, in your great spiritual insight, you see better than others, and you are better than others, and you have no need of a Savior. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's drawing off the language of Isaiah that God sent Isaiah, tell these people, seeing but do not see. In hearing, do not hear. Um, Every one of us, by the way, has eyes of our hearts. And if we come to the point where we think we're better than other people, and we think we, we see, Jesus says we are blind. See, the gospel is so counterintuitive. The only people that get saved are people that say, I'm blind. And people that say, I see, are hardened in blindness. Isn't that interesting? Um, The first thing to us coming to a saving knowledge of Christ is to say, by nature, I am blind. By nature, my heart and my mind are darkened. And, you know, it's interesting, Martin Luther said, once you say that and you begin to cry out to the Lord, you've already received grace and you've already had the eyes of your hearts opened. Isn't that interesting? The second you really say that from the heart, the second you really acknowledge you're not better than other people. In fact, you know and feel that you're worse than others. Don't miss that. The greatest snare to coming to Jesus is thinking you're better than others. The greatest snare to coming to Jesus is thinking, I'm not like those sinners over there. Notice what the Pharisees said. 
In verse 34, you were born in utter sin. No, all of us were born in utter sin. But the moment we recognize that and we cry out to the Lord who said, seek me while I'm near, is the moment we've already had our eyes open to see and believe in the Son of God. Um, I want to leave you with this thought this morning. And, And I want us all to leave here asking the question, have I had the eyes of my hearts opened by Christ? You know, that's a prayer we, we need to pray constantly, even if we've had it done in initial conversion. We need to say, Lord, give me more light. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things in your law. Open my eyes that I might see Christ in his glory. Open the eyes of my heart that I might not love wickedness and darkness. Open the eyes of my heart that I might see the Savior on the cross for me. That's, that's a prayer that true believers pray all of their life. Remember, David prayed that. Open the eyes of my heart that I might see wondrous things from your law. We, we are acknowledging that only he can do it. And here's the good news. He does it freely. He does it sovereignly. He does it merely by grace. And he loves to open the eyes of sinners like us. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus loves to open the eyes of sinners like us. And then I want us to leave with one other thought this morning. We are all, I am, prone to compare ourselves with others and quick to focus on their sin like the disciples sought to do, and the Pharisees and the Jews and everybody in this chapter except Jesus. Very interesting. The only one that could have focused on sin didn't at that moment. We're so quick to focus on the sins of others and so slow to focus on our own sin. And so I would just exhort us this morning that we would be a people that are quick to focus on our own need, quick to see the log in our own eyes, and quick to go to Jesus for the healing that we need. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this portion of Scripture, and we thank you that though we were blind, yet you have made us to see. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for every every uh, redemption that is represented in this building, every man and woman and boy and girl who have undergone what this man underwent physically but in the spiritual realm. We thank you that you are the sovereign Christ who opens the eyes of our hearts. We pray that you would open them wide to see you as the glorified Son of Man. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts more and more, that we might behold more and more of your light and glory and holiness and beauty. We pray that you would also make us a people, Lord, that are quick to focus on our own sin and that are quick to come to you to deal with it. Would you have mercy on us to that end? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.